Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. topic is child sacrifice and it does not mean what you sacrifice for your children but rather it means sacrificing children and if I straight out if I say well you know the, the Bible has a lot of information about child sacrifice the first thing that will come to mind is where okay what Okay. The yeah, Akeda will be one. Well, Gehenna will come to that, and the story of Yiftah, which we'll get, take a look at in a few moments. And so there are a few cases where it is, but it's not something that is encouraged. It's not something that seems to be, have been practiced, except for these rather odd occasions. First of all, a quick, very, very quick orientation. What exactly do we mean by sacrifice and how does sacrifice or how did sacrifice work during the first temple period uh, when it was a more dynamic organization? In the second temple period, it's restricted to a certain group of people in one place, and it's not of major religious importance to the people who by this time are have the beginnings of houses of prayer. Um, and then we'll turn and then I'll turn to to child sacrifice in that particular context. Now, first of all, what does sacrifice mean? What does the word sacrifice mean? Give up something precious. You give up something, that's what that's where we use it. Look at all of our, all that I've sacrificed for you or something like that. But the etymologically, that's to say in terms of the underlying roots. Sacred. Well, sacred is part of it. Saker. It's heart. Sak no, sacred heart is sacred. Oh, okay. Sakir okay. is, yeah, is okay. right. sacred. Yeah. And fakere is to make. So you, the, the act, in sacrifice, the a ritual act makes something sacred. Okay? And sacred in its original, in, in, in its Latin sense, it was pretty much like kadosh is in Hebrew. It meant something that is set aside, distinguished in some way. Okay, um, but the Hebrew word for sacrifice, okay, bringing, making a presentation, is a different word. It's korban. Korban. How many people here know Hebrew? Some, a little bit of Hebrew. Everyone, a little bit. Okay. So, so the word karov, or the the, the root kuf bet, has to do with bringing something close. So a korban is something that is brought close to. So if I offer you something, if I make an offering, I'm transferring Take something it. to you. Okay, very good. Uh, and that's what a korban is. The question that's going to be of interest to us over here is what exactly is implied by this transaction? Because it's trans it is indeed a transaction. I'm 
setting aside something that I'm giving to you, and it's not exactly for free. Okay. There's a, going to be, as the popular expression has it, a quid for quo. Okay. Okay. I could say tit for tat, oh, but it's not. But it, it's okay. That's much worse. So, so, so when, when in Israelite, what Israelites did, they were makrivim korban, means that they were bringing something which is brought close, and they were bringing something close. And that was the important uh, part of it. Now, those things that were permitted to be presented to God on an altar, and think altar is a raised table for presentation with four horns, okay? That had co four quarters that were raised, and I'll, I'll mention what their function was in a few moments. So the animals that were brought and presented to God were those animals that people ate. If you couldn't eat it, you couldn't serve it. So basically, it refers to the kosher animals. It excludes fish, okay? Because fish wasn't a native, there wasn't native fish had to come from the coast. They were imported, so to speak. And then the animals in terms of prestige were cattle, sheep, and goats. More prestigious were male animals. Why? Because you can breathe it. Because, yeah, because, but also there were fewer of them. Those were the animals that were eaten most often because one, one male is going to service many females. Uh -huh. So they didn't, so you didn't, if you're raising animals, you don't, there's no particular point in, in keeping cattle, in keeping a male around for a long time. Until yes. One, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's the same thing now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's a mammal <laughs> And and then the preference was always that you have the the whole animal. So if you an animal that's healthy that it has no no deficit, and without a blemish. And then under certain circumstances for certain offerings, you could bring a female animal and a blemished animal. But these were for the less important types of sacrifices. <clears throat> Uh, that were brought. Another thing that's important about the, Isra uh, the Israelite system of sacrifices, which you have actually in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. And what happens usually in the, when we come around Leviticus, rabbinic sermons usually turn away from the Bible, away from the Torah, and they start talking about any other topic from the Midrash or politics or whatever, because people don't know how to handle, how to handle that. Um, but that's where you have the layout, and it's it, it really interesting. If I am compelled to bring a certain type of an offering, it's scaled economically, so poor people could even bring a bird that they could capture by themselves. Okay, but that was only if you were poor, and nobody asked you what your net worth was. You brought the animal, and you told a priest, "This is going to be for this purpose or for that purpose." Now, what were the purposes of the different animals that were being brought? What was the purpose of the sacrifice? One sacrifice is called an ola, an ola or a whole offering. The whole animal is burnt on the offering, uh, is burnt on the altar. Usually, most likely, it means it was skinned, and because you're not going to burn, you don't burn the skin on the altar. And but nobody benefited from it, because on most sacrifices, the officiating priest got a good chunk of the animal to eat. That was for the sir, and he got the and he got the got the hide also. So the Olah, the Olah is translated Holocaust. That's the way it means completely consumed. That's, that's all it means. 
Uh, here's a big, just a big parenthesis. The term Holocaust was applied to the, uh, uh, called the Holocaust. And, uh, it, but the, the word Elie Wiesel claims that he invented the term. Actually, he borrowed it from somebody else. He is the one who popularized that term. And nowadays, there's a movement away from this in preference for the term Shoah. Mm -hmm. Shoah means, uh, Shoah simply means senseless destruction, wanton destruction. Uh, the, the reason for this move is primarily because in, uh, in, for many Christians, the idea of the Holocaust was that somehow these were innocents who died for our sins, for sins, and therefore there was something sacred in the act. And it was not a way that Jews think about this, and so there was something odd about this. And this part of this is the term, part of this terminology debate had to do with the chapel in, in, in Christian chapels and, and uh, religious signs and some of the uh, various. The, the whole thing is that Jews who were burned during the Shoah, they weren't bringing themselves willingly. Yeah. But the term, they didn't the, have the option. Remember, when Wiesel popularized the term, there was no way, there, yeah. there was no word that had been invented, and it was fine. And then Shoah is the one that uh, be, is the one preferred. This is a celebratory type of sacrifice. It's most likely the oldest type of offering that we know of in the Bible. And other people, other peoples around Israel practiced this type of a sacrifice. Another type of a sacrifice that people brought was a, uh, an asham, a guilt offering. And the guilt offering simply meant, I know I did something wrong, but I'm not quite sure what it was. So if you're a neurotic, this is the perfect, uh, the perfect uh, sacrifice for you. And so you bring it. Uh, you bring this offering, and then you feel good. Now, there's another sacrifice that's brought. It's called a zevach shlamim, or just, it's the general offer. And basically it means, I feel good about myself, and we're going to have meat tonight. Because every animal that was consumed was slaughtered ritually. And so the only reason I'm, going to, I'm doing this is because I feel good we're going to eat meat. Pe people did not eat meat regularly. They just ate meat on occasions. And so you brought the shlamim. Now, many people, and most likely most people, slaughtered their animals at home. But if you wanted to slaughter your animal in a place where God's presence was experienced in a sacred shrine, in the Ohelmoe, the tabernacle, in the temple, you had to be ritually pure. Being ritually pure meant that you came in free from sin. Now, whatever sin means, you did something wrong. You just you violated any of a number of, of things. The fact of the matter is, if you lived in Israel and you worked on a farm and you picked up a carcass of some dead, you know, skunk and you tossed it, you were ritually impure. If you slept with your wife and she was menstruating or you came in contact with menstrual blood, you and she was impure. If there was semen on her body, lined on your body, you were ritually impure. Basically, most people were ritually impure most of the time. And that was not a sin. There was nothing wrong with it. It was just a fact of life. And so, in order to purify your sin, you waited 24 hours, you, you pay, 
you bathed, you immersed yourself in running water. Okay, that's where our modern mikvah, the mikvah comes from. And now you are ritually pure. What you do is you come to the, to the shrine and you present, first of all, an offering that is called, in Hebrew it's called a chatat, usually translated a sin offering, but it is actually a purification offering. It is from the Shoresh Chet Tet Aleph in the PL, which has to do with chitui, purification or purgation. So all of the translations on the holidays, when you're singing, you know, the al ha'asham, the al ha'chatat, etc., all it's referring to is to the guilt offering. I'm bringing something because I think I may have done something that I'm responsible for. Some of these involve confessions, but you're, you're never confessing to the priest. You're only confessing your own. I know why I'm bringing it. No one hears your confessions. The priest says, this is a chatat, so he knows how to treat it. On Hashem, I know how to treat it. It's an Allah, I know how to treat it. That's all. He doesn't know. And the rest is up to you. If you're sincere, saying repentance, it counts. Okay? Now, that is the whole business of the Israel ritual uh, calendar and, and sacrifice. Why would people then bring these extra offerings to the shrine? Because they wanted to. There was some sheer pleasure of being in a place where you knew in that building, in the back of the building, in the back of the shrine, in that sacred room, the Kodesh Kodeshim, the room set, the set aside of the set aside, the presence of God is to be found. Okay? And that's what, and if you take a look at the, some of the Psalms that, we, that, that are recited in, in the liturgy, outside the liturgy, it's the idea of being close to where God is. It's sort of like if you've taken a tour through the White House, that, if you go down that hall and turn left, you're going to get to the Oval Office. Okay. Wow. It's a, George Washington slept here. This is where this battle took place. It's the idea of being in the presence of something that's bigger than you are. And it's in that background that we have to talk about, about child sacrifice. So I said it's a trans. It's, 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 there's going to be some sort of an activity. There's there's a, a deal that's being made with somebody. We today all can raise questions. What do you mean by God? Do you believe in God? Do you understand? There was no. This question is a modern question. Nowhere in the Bible does anybody ask it. Nowhere in the Mishnah does anybody ask it. Everyone takes for granted that God is. No one gets hung up on how to define it. God is an invisible presence, real. He is like, and, and a long time ago, people knew that God could make himself visible. This is the important thing. He could make, he can make himself visible if he wants to, to certain people, but he doesn't have to. And as the Bible actually progresses, as the stories begin to progress forward and uh, after the Torah into the, then God only makes his appearance or, or his sounds available to Nevim, to certain prophetic types of, uh, of individuals. But in the Bible itself, the presence is real, and everybody knows you don't have to go to, you don't have to go to the temple to find God's presence. But if you go to the temple, God has his presence there. You can't be any closer than that. Otherwise, he's invisible. You don't know him. I sometimes would use the, the, the movie Harvey, if you remember, there was an old movie, the Harvey with the rabbit. That, okay. So 
a real presence, however we want to understand it psychologically or not. Now, so that's the sign. That's what sacrifice is. It's a transaction between people <coughs> under rules, and it's done because people want to make this transaction, and the person or the, the, the personality, the personage with whom they're making that transaction is real. It's never a question. Under the worst of circumstances, people will say, where is God? Because God says, essentially, when I'm angry with my people, I turn my face aside. I hide my face. And that is something that you may have done or you may have been done to you by parents. Mm -hmm. Okay? I don't see you. I don't want to see you. You made me angry. Go to your room. Okay, whatever it is. And it can break the heart of a kid or it can scare a kid, however, it's, however that's going to happen. And that's what God says to Israel. Okay? And what happens when God says to Israel, frankly, it hits the fan. God is not there to protect them. So whatever bad stuff is going to happen, because that's the nature of the world, it's going to happen to them. They might be lucky and nothing will happen. But if bad stuff happens, it's not because God brought it to them. It's just because... He wasn't protecting them. Now, this is a common type of, a, uh, of, of an understanding. It permeates and makes almost all of the books easier to understand when you understand when, when these are the ideas are there. Now, what do we have for, uh, for child sacrifice? One of the famous passages that is brought out is a passage in Jeremiah, in Yermiahu chapter 7, verse 31, from about 600 BCE, and he says this. They constructed the Bamot of the Tophet, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, Gehenom, okay, for burning their sons and daughters in fire. So they build these high places, and to this day we're still not sure what a high place is or what it looks like, but it seemed, it's some sort of a shrine that they built. We know that it doesn't necessarily have to be high because there are high places and valleys. So, so it's some sort of a construction that they're made. And he refers, Jeremiah is referring to something which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, which is if you've entered through the Zion Gate of Jerusalem, then it's that big valley that you see down below, okay? Uh, okay, or where you cross down, you go down to Manila, okay? Uh, so that is the valley of the sons of Hinnom. That's Gehenna, and that's later identified as hell. And that's a, because according to the rabbis, this was, a, this was a charnel house. This is a place where they were always burying and burning bodies. Okay? So, but what he's saying over here is they take their children and they burn their children. Okay? So that's one explanation that they're burning their children. Uh, Jeremiah, B'nai Israel, the Israelites. The Israelites are burning their children. So he refers to that. Okay? Okay. Uh, in Jeremiah 19, he refers again, because they built the Bamot of the Baal to burn, they set off their sons and their daughters for the Baal. So according to this, they're burning their sons and daughters for the Canaanite god Baal. There's another passage that refers to another, another uh, deity called Moloch, okay? Uh, Moloch, which just means king. It's the same word as Melech, but not an Israelite figure. I remember in school being taught that there was a huge image that was made out of metal that had hands like this. We had the same story. Same story. <laughs> hey, and it was stoked from inside until it was red hot, and the babies were placed there. 
and you know, and, and, and you revile with disgust. Ugh, okay, and so who wants to be a pagan after right. that? Yeah. But, but wasn't, he, wasn't, wasn't he chastising the Israelites because they were copying the pagans? But if they're doing it, they're doing it. They're, so they're yeah. burning down. But now the question comes up is something that's rather interesting. Um, he uses the term to burn the child, but you never burn a sacrifice. You bring a sacrifice near. Mm -hmm. the, it's not that the sacrifice isn't burnt, but that's not the language of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. There is something called fibrillation. Okay? Now, fibrillation works like this. Uh, some of you may have done this at one point in your life. You, you wet your finger and you take, put it through the flame of a candle. Mm -hmm. Or if you're camping, you jump through fire. Or if you take one of these courses, you can walk on coals. Okay? Mm -hmm. You're not burning yourself. But what you're doing, at least fibrillation, was practiced in different parts of the ancient world and also different parts of the Greco-Roman world. You took a baby and you put the baby through the flames of the fire quickly. You weren't burning the baby. Mm -hmm. What you were doing was you were magically creating a web of protection around the baby. Hmm. Okay? Now, this is considered a pagan custom. This is something that the prophet does not allow. And Israelites aren't supposed to do it. Why? Either because it's nonsense or because God doesn't want us to. But they're not burning babies per se. And this is most likely not child sacrifice, but it's a ritual that has to do with fire. Okay? But there's a different question. In the book of Micah, in the book of Micah, Mike is sort of asking questions. Look, all, God brought you out of Egypt, and he rescued you, and he gave you this place. And now the people are asking the question, according to Micah in chapter 6, it says, well, how do I express my thanks? So I, this is a translation. He says, shall I approach God with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will God be pleased with a thousand rams, myriad of streams of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my rebellion, the fruit of my womb for my own wrongdoing? Now here, it seems as if they are saying, basically, if I do wrong, am I supposed to do these things? And then Micah continues with the famous passage. No, this is what he asks of you, okay? To do righteous, okay, to, to act justly, Act uh, um, to, to act with chesed, okay, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, but what's interesting to us is not the ethical response of of the prophet, but rather the question that Micah is putting in people's heads. In other words, for them, it might say, God did all these wonderful things for me, so it, it's not unreasonable for me to offer my firstborn. And he's saying, no, 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 you don't have to go that far, okay? Okay. Now, there's one more prophet that's sort of interesting to us, and that's Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is a nasty, is really a pretty nasty-minded person, <laughs> uh, okay? And he really doesn't like the Israelites. He chastises them, and he thinks everything they have coming, everything that they did wrong, they really have a lot of stuff coming to them. Because they committed adultery and blood is on their hands, and with and with their dung balls, they committed adultery. Dung balls, the Hebrew word here is gilulim, and basically it means shit, okay, turds. He's talking about those things that you see in museums, little, little 
little small figurines mm -hmm. of gods and goddesses, okay, that you could hold in your hand. And since they're made mm -hmm. out of reddish brown clay, that's he's referring to them as dung, dung balls, is the way I translated the term. Mm -hmm. And also, and with their dung balls, and also their sons, which they bore for me, they caused to pass them to the dung balls for food. In addition, they did this to me. They made my sanctuary impure on the day that they profaned my Sabbaths. And when they slaughtered their children for their dung balls, they came to my sanctuary on that day to profane it. And lo, this is what they did in the middle of my house. Ezekiel seems to be talking about here, about, he's talking about shechita. The, word, the term is b'shochtam, and it means they slaughtered, they, they cut their throats. That's their slaughtering. We're not sure what this means, but it could very well be referring to human sacrifice that's taking place in the sanctuary. But it's not that these children are not that their blood is being brought to the altar. It's happening. It's a huge, it's a huge structure, and it's happening in courts that were all around. We still don't quite understand what the temple looked like before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. There are a few other cases. There, there's, there's one reference, a uh, similar thing uh, in, uh, in Psalm 106, but we'll let it go with that. When the Israelites come in the story, in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites come into the land of Canaan, what are they supposed to do to the locals? Kill them. We're supposed to kill them. Okay. What's the word for that? Shechita? No, what's, no. The word? what's the word for killing all the local inhabitants? Genocide. Genocide. It's genocide. Oh. That was a term that no one, Lou Silverman was fortunate. Lou Silverman was the first one to write about this in public. Lou Silverman was a professor at Yeshiva University. So when he used the term and said, this is a story about genocide that most likely never happened, it's important, but it's important for a strange reason, because we're going to see that that's what was done to Israelites, okay, in a moment. So when the Israelites are come, told to come into the land, they are told to kill all the local inhabitants. There's a justification made for it. That's not important, but the fact is that's what's supposed to happen. Now, if you have the Chumash over here, we're going to get to the real cases of... of uh, take a look at page... The Israelites are told to kill whoever, you know, not only when they're coming to the land of Israel, when they have this war or that fight or against them, they're told to kill them. As a rule of thumb, if you're, in if you're going to war, it's a you, good idea to kill the enemies. It's not yeah. a bad idea yeah. at all. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, even... Where are we? Page 664. Um, actually, 660, I want you to take a look at page, uh, on page 667, verse 29. Okay. Uh, so this is the story of Yiftach, Jephthah, and he has the, the first part, the first part, 667, verse 29. And somebody, would someone like to read it for us? Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed over Mizpeh of Gilead, and from Mizpeh of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Amnon, Ammon. Ammon. Yeah. 
and shift the rod around and the root and sit. If thou look indeed the little the children of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whosoever comes forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Bad ideas with his daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Continue. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hand. And he smote them from Arur until they come to Minith, even twenty cities, cities and unto Abel Cheramim with a very great slaughter. So the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. The story goes on. Yeah. The story goes on. They started there. That's sort of like the Midas touch sort of thing. Okay, here. Pick, pick it up at verse 24 here. Verse 24. 34. 34. 34, okay. When Jephthah arrived at his home in this there was his daughter coming out to meet him with Timbrel and Donald. She was an only child. He had no other son or daughter. On seeing her, he rent his clothes and said, Alas, daughter, you have brought me low. You have become my troubler. For I have uttered a vow to the Lord, and I cannot reflect. Father, she said, you have uttered a vow to the Lord. Do to me as you have vowed, seeing that the Lord has vindicated you against your enemies, the Ammonites. She further said to her father, let this be done for me. Let me be for two months, and I will go with my companions and lament upon the hills, and there bewail my maidenhood. Go, he replied. He let her go for two months, and she and her companions went and bewailed her maidenhood upon the hills. After two months' time, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. She had never known a man. So it became a custom in Israel for the maidens of Israel to go every year for four days in the year and chant dirges for the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. And it's interesting that she had never known a man because when they had to sacrifice female animals, they had to be like birds and they had to be used as flowers and stuff. That's for under one circumstance. Yeah. That's the, a, 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 a heifer, the red yeah. heifer. Yeah. Okay. What's the what's what's the deal that took place here? The, well, the rabbis are not very happy with that. We're not concerned with the rabbis here. Okay. That's she important. Has two months to to plan. Now, what's the deal between Jaffa and God? You let me win the war, I'll kill my... The first thing that I comes need... Out. Yeah, it's not important what he says. It's the first thing that comes out of his house, okay? It could have been an animal because houses, part of a house, the, the yard of the house was used as an enclosure for keeping animals. It could have been an animal. Mm-hmm. And the rabbis bend over backwards to try to explain it was a rash vow, et cetera, et cetera. But we're going to see in a moment this is not a unique... It's not a unique uh, occurrence. But the nature of the vow was... You do for me, and I'll do for you. That's the simple, that's the, the shot. The other thing about, about this that's really interesting is he makes no excuse. She understands it, and she is a willing, 
she's complicit in, 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 her own, in her own sacrifice. She asks for a condition, which is not a violation of his vow, and so everything is able to uh, go through. Now, around the year 840, there's a king named Mesha. And this king, Mesha, uh, conquers territory in his own kingdom that was occupied by Israelites earlier. So there's a period of time when Israelites from the west side of the Jordan come into his territory and settle in certain areas. Uh, roughly, it would be the in the southern half of the modern state of Jordan today. Um, and this is what he writes. Now, he, this is an inscription that's on a stele, a black basalt stele, about so high that's found in the Louvre, downstairs in the basement, and sometimes they don't turn on the lights in that room. So, uh, um, he's a king of, is it? He's a Moabite, Moabite king, king. A Moabite king. Um, and this is what he says over here. It says, the men of God, God, G-A-D, had settled in the land of Ataroth from of old, and the king of Israel had fortified Ataroth for himself. But I fought against the town and took it. I slew all the inhabitants of the town as a dedicated offering for Chemosh and Moab. Okay? Uh, and then Chemosh said to me, go take Nebo from Israel. So I went by night, and I fought against it from the break of dawn till noon, and I took it, and I slew all in it. Now, what's interesting over here, and I want to draw the parallel on purpose, is the Moabite god who supports King Mesha tells him to go. If he's telling me to go, he's not telling me to go because I'm going to lose. He's going to support my effort. So when I recapture the city... What I'm going to do is I am destroying all of the local inhabitants, and that is, in a certain way, a payment to the god Kamosh. But that is very much similar to what the Israelites did to the Canaanites in Israel. Forget the, forgetting the practical side of this. Uh, I was, yesterday I went to the uh, museum in uh, on the west, uh, in your old town, and there was a whole section there about Kit Carson. So when Kit Carson was sent to move certain branches of the Navajo, he didn't kill them, but the first thing he did is he burnt all of their towns, and so they had nowhere, the, and then he had all the guns, so then he was able to move them. You, there are practical reasons to do certain things, but all of this is being explained as religious behavior in the Moabite, in the Moabite stone, as well as in the case of, uh, of the Israelites. But that's our child sacrifice. But we do have a case of child sacrifice. In the second book of Kings, chapter 23, just a few verses, and we'll read them to you. 2 Kings I'm sorry, 2 Kings 3, 26, chapter 3, verses 26. 
Okay. Uh, this also involves a mobile. Now, Israelites are attacking the Moabites. Again, so Israel, Israelite groups and Edomite groups actually forged a wall. So the Israelites are coming from the west, the Edomites are moving up from the south, and they're capturing this, they're coming into the city of Moab, and they're attacking a place that's actually a place, it's a, a place called El Kerak today, and it's, it's, on an isol it's a city on top of an isolated mountain. It can't be taken by climbing the mountains because whoever's on top can just throw stones down on you. You can't get up there. So this is the story here. Um, the Israelites have been successful up to here. But suddenly now they've surrounded the city where the king and his forces are. They are up there. Seeing that the battle was going against him, the king of Moab led an attempt of 700 swordsmen to break away through to the king of Edom, but they failed. So he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him up on the wall as a burnt offering. A great wrath came upon Israel, so they withdrew from him and went back to their own land. I'm losing. The only way I'm going to succeed is to do this act, which he does. He kills his son and heir to the throne, okay? And he does it publicly on the wall of the city. So all of the besiegers are going to see him. What deal is being struck? If I kill my son, they'll go away and leave me in peace. Okay. In other words, but where have we seen that already? You just saw that with Jephthah. Yeah. Whatever comes out of my house, if you give me the battle, if I lose the battle, I'm, you're not getting anything. But if you give me success in battle, <coughs> I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. So over here, what the king of Moab is doing is he's not waiting for the outcome of the battle. He's paying up front before the battle takes place. It doesn't make much difference in the, in the nature of the transaction because if he would lose the battle, he's going to lose it anyway. If his god, Kamosh, wouldn't support him, okay, he's lost it. He would lose it anyway. Here, the worst thing he's going to lose is his son that, he, that he's going to do. So this is the nature of, this is a very interesting transaction that takes place. What it does show, however, is on both sides of the Jordan River, we have a culture where it is not unreasonable under extreme circumstances to offer a child as a sacrifice. And I guess it's understood that the payment, it's I'm offering a child because the, what I'm going to get is something very great. Now, we can say, how can you do that to a child? We, we tend to be very sentimental about our children. We grew up in a culture since, since the last 100 years plus, sentimental. People who grow up in cultures where they have kids and kids die, okay, on a regular basis, they still, they'll still end up with five children, but they'll have lost a number of children in the course of time. Or people in third, in third world countries, most of studies done by the Rockefeller Foundation have shown most, uh, most women who are married uh, and are, having, are engaged in sex are pregnant for most of their childbearing years, but there's, there's a lot of spontaneous abortion. 
that takes place. So sometimes they know it, sometimes they don't know it. But even if a child's born for a year or so, it's sad, but it's, it happens. So the sentimentality is something that we, is, is ours. Um, tying this to the Akedah is very interesting. Uh, Rembrandt made a painting and an etching of the Akedah. The older, the first one that he made is very colorful. Mm -hmm. And Isaac in that particular painting is a young man of about 30 years old. Then there's a black and white where the Akedah, where, the, where Isaac is a child. And that is filled with pathos. And that was then after his own child died. Titus. Huh? Titus. So, what's it called? Titus. Titus. Ah, ah. Thank you. So, there's a, but that's reflected, that's reflected in it. Now, let's look a moment, <clears throat> thinking back. All, everyone here knows the story of the Akedah. God comes to Abraham, okay, and says... Take your, take your son, your only one, the only one that you love, Isaac, and take him to the mountain and offer him there as an Ola. Okay, as an Ola, on the, to the place where I'll show you. And Abraham says nothing. Abraham could have said a lot of things. Abraham could have said, no, okay, no, forget it. Abraham could have run away. Abraham uh, could have taken a knife and got, okay, and killed himself. There are a lot of things that Abraham could have done, but that's not what Abraham does, okay? The question is, why not? Now, we're not rabbis, so we don't have to worry about what the rabbis who, were, who, who comment on it to show that, that, that turn this into something that it's really not. But if we take, go back to the beginning of the Abraham saga in, in, chapter, in chapter 12, Lech Lecha, but I don't want to, we're not going to read there. So God says, go from your land to the place where I'm going to show you. I'm going to basically, I'm going to make, increase your reputation and you're going to become wealthy, etc., etc. Abraham comes to the land of Canaan spends, looks around, and then continues straight down to Egypt. Why? Because there's a, it's, not a good place to, it's not a good place to live. When he gets out of Egypt, when he and Lot get out of Egypt, they're wealthy people. There was, a, there was some hanky-panky with Sarah over there, but that's not important. He becomes, he becomes wealthy as a result of that. In fact, when he comes out of Egypt, he and Lot are so wealthy that they can't camp in the same place. There's not enough fodder for their animals. So Lot decides he's going to go to the area, the southern part of the Dead Sea, and, and, and Abraham then continues back into uh, Canaan. And over the years, Abraham's wealth increases. Okay? Now everything is good. And he has a son. He has a son. Okay? Esau. Ishmael. Ishmael. He has a son, Ishmael, yeah. by Hagar. And now God comes to him and says, take your son. Okay, he wants Isaac. Why doesn't Abraham hesitate? Because the best God him? can see him no matter what he does. Okay, but why doesn't he hesitate? Because he can't hide. I know. I, well, why? I can't, of course I, I can say no. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Because God's already given him so much. Because God's already... God is redeeming... Payback time. 
the pro think for example, think for example, the Godfather One. I think it was the Godfather One. Maybe it was Godfather Two. Okay, in which uh, the Don asks for a favor. Um, you do not refuse a favor. Okay, I'll beat up the kid who got your daughter pregnant. He I says, and sometimes I will ask for. Sometime in the future, I will ask for a favor. When the Don asks for a favor, asks for something, you give it to him because he's not asking for a favor. He's telling you. He's telling you because you use already of given. So this is this is the whole point. So 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 the rabbi has made this drawn it. In terms of everything that we see, there is a period of time in which all of this makes sense culturally. There is an understanding that God's blessings come at a price. In the case of Micah, the, 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 he, he puts words in the mouth of his audience, shall I offer the first, my firstborn for that, to pay, to pay God back? In other words, I received it, how can I not pay him back? So Micah is saying, no, 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 you guys are all on the wrong track. What God is asking is ethical behavior. This is a much earlier story over here. In an earlier time, it's told about earlier ancestors before this ethical sense fills, begins to fill our texts. And so, in the case of the Akedah, benefits were received, and now a test is being made to see if you're willing to pay the price. At the end of the day, you don't have to pay the price. Okay. But you were willing to pay the price, and that's what counts. Now, there's one other thing. This has one strange continuity, and with that I'm going to I'll, I'll conclude. The story of the Akedah is clearly a powerful story. It, 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 it raises many, many emotions and can be told in many ways. Where else? Now, when they're walking up the mountain, Abraham, only Abraham and Isaac are going, are going up the mountain. Isaac is carrying what? The wood. The wood. Abraham is carrying the fire. He's carrying, obviously, he's carrying a knife. A, a knife. Okay. Okay. What other image in Western literature of someone going up the mountain carrying wood? That's Jesus. Jesus going up to get some, uh, going up to the cavalry, carrying the cross on his back. Yeah. Think. A father sacrificing his son. The image becomes very, very powerful, okay? And the son then becomes understood in theology as paying the, as the, paying the price, okay? Paying the price or the ransom for all the sins that have yet to be made. The price is being paid first in advance. It's a continuation of the same type of a motif, but it has been highly spiritualized, mm -hmm. powerfully spiritualized. And there are other influences that come into this from, from Greco-Roman, from, from Hellenistic uh, um, uh, religion at the same time. But its roots go back into antiquity. They are clearly pre-Israelite, and, and Israelites just buy into this whole cultural, and it works through, and we see that it works through in different periods of time. It's, it's present in text throughout the biblical period. Uh, and so did our ancestors practice child sacrifice under certain conditions, rather unique conditions indeed? 
Yes, it was practiced until it was stopped. How did, you know, the Muslims say that it was Ishmael who was sacrificed? Correct. Uh, I read that part of the story. What is their take on it? It's fairly simple. We falsified scripture. Oh, no, I know that, as far as that goes. <laughs> and there's a proof. There's a, there's a proof from God's words. Kach, the rabbi said, the, what's, the midrash is this. That Abraham, God says to Abraham, take your son. Mm -hmm. Abraham says, I have two sons, according to the midrash. Your only son. This is an only son for this one, for his, this mother, and this is an only, okay, okay. And then finally, that you love. I love this one and I love that one. Okay, okay, okay. God could only have said to Abraham the first words, take your son, your only son, when it was, was one son, there was one son. And the only son then at that time would have been Ishmael. Mm -hmm. And so the rest we added. That's their version of it. That's their version. There was a, there, incidentally, there was a war that was fought over yeah. this between Sunni and Shia, both at that time were in Iran, over this around 640 or something like that. But the Quran itself doesn't specify. No, it does not specify. It's only in their hadith, which is their version of the Talmud, basically. Yeah, yeah. 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 But there are also, see, there are also questions in, in contemporary research on Muslim origins, there are a lot of questions as to uh, how did they know the Bible. And more or less, they only knew the Bible in a homiletic way through whoever they had. And some of the store, so their sources of information were not people that were going to end up in the uh, rabbinic movement. So they have versions that you don't find in, uh, in, in our literature. Yeah. Um, at what point would the Israelites um, introduce the custom uh, that Pinyon of Ben, you know, buying back. Pinyon of Ben? Yeah, buying back the eldest son, sort of as, um, to me, <coughs> uh, evidence of the fact that, that the Akita was a cautionary tale that I don't want child sacrifice. Okay, well, the, the, the Pinyon of Ben has to do with. Um, most likely is a response to the following situation. You have a permanent priesthood that's from the tribe of Levi, okay, Levites. Prior to that, apparently, it was possible for none Levites to function as priests. So for example, when we have a list of David's officers, his son functions as, is listed as an officer, who is listed as a priest. Mm -hmm. So all a priest, a priest was a specialist in the sacrificial ritual. So you had priests who were not necessarily Levites until, and then we have a story that Moses, so at some point there's conflict between Levitical priests mm -hmm. and non-Levitical priests. The Pidyon Haben business has to do with, and it seems to reflect, but here it's, this is all anthropologists imposing an interpretation on the text, is, that firstborn son, there used to be a joke about the Irish, okay? The first, the eldest, the eldest son inherits the land, the second son becomes a priest, and the third one goes to his, it goes to America, it goes to America. So here, the firstborn of the family may have been designated as the priest. So God, what God is saying is, in other words, 
dedicated to the service of God in the same way that, say, Samuel is taken as, as a service of God. So here you have to redeem the firstborn son because normally that was the standard practice, but you have to redeem him. It's not, you don't have a choice. So that would seem to be what's involved. Okay. I've often thought about Samuel being taken to, you know, he, she waited until he was weaned and then she took him to Jerusalem. She took him to the high priest and the high priest said, you want me to do what? You want me to take on responsibility for this kid? Kids weren't weaned at three. No, no, they were, they were probably about three or four years old. Correct. But still, taking on the responsibility of a child while the mother pushes her back well, home. She hung out. She hung out. <laughs> so they just, I think a few weeks ago, came out with a report that they found in today's Peru a burial site where there's like was a hundred and something children that had been sacrificed right. near the ocean. Uh. Now, in in our context here, how common was uh, child sacrifice yes, or human sacrifice in the Jewish uh, realm? In what period are we talking about? And is this a reflection of a broader um, a phenomena in the neighboring tribes? I mean, were the Canaanites sacrificing large numbers and, and, and in what time period are we talking okay. about? No, those are all very good questions. The best evidence that was given that has been presented in that part of the world for child sacrifices being very common was the was the reference to a tophet that we I mentioned in one of the citations said that the tophet Jeremiah refers to a tophet. The Tophet was a, a, a place where they burned bodies. So apparently in Phoenicia, up in Lebanese coast, right. there were various places where they found, they found charred bones. The biggest example of this is, was found in North Africa in Carthage, um, near, the harbor, near the harbor of Carthage, in, in Tunisia, near, in Carthage, uh, excavated by Harvard. And what they found was a cemetery, an area, and there were only bones of children from up to from 12, but there were also fetal bones there. And this is, this is the thing that's interesting. You don't sacrifice fetuses, but what they did find was that there were bones that were charred. The explanation for this, there are those who say, yes, this is a, this is a tophet and this is where they, these are the bodies of children, et cetera, that were sacrificed. That's possibility A. In addition, Herodotus, Herodotus, I believe, and there's one other Greek historian, writes about ceremonies in which they used to have make noise and play pipes to cover the cries of the children that were being burnt alive. But Herodotus never saw this. It's a story that he heard about it. Now, again, not impossible. The tendency among people who look at this, and this material say, Herodotus heard a story. Among other things, he's taught usually in schools, the father of history, but among historians, he's the father of lies. <laughs> it's a, he was also, because he, he reported what was told to him, and he was, not, he was not particularly critical of asking, did you see it? Are you familiar with it? He, he would take third-hand stories, and a, a story's worth writing, so he told stories. Um, the explanation for the phenomenon we have at Carthage is that what possibly what happened was they took bodies. They didn't cremate the bodies till everything burnt, but they burnt off the flesh. 
And then they gathered the remains and they put them in jars and they buried the jars. And what was found at Carthage was a child's cemetery. Okay, so that's the uh, that's one way, and I tend to prefer to prefer that because it it makes sense to me. What we haven't found there there are a number of cemeteries. There's one Phoenician cemetery that has been found and excavated in Israel, Achziv. Uh, actually, found the the woman uh, Elat Mazar, who's the woman who's digging at the Kotel, uh, not the Kotel. She's living in the city of David. Is the one who excavated there, and there were no, there were no, there was no child burial. So there were children were buried along with parents. There were some charred bones. There were some bones that weren't charred. So we have no, there's nothing, no evidence from Israel. Uh, no excavations went to any great depth in Geben Hinnom, uh, which is now actually being part of it's being turned into an archaeological park. Um, and so there's no evidence from this. So all we have are the text is the textual evidence. So the questions remain good, but we don't have enough archaeological evidence one way or another to support that there was really they were really burning burning. Maybe. Like so, so let me follow up, please. excuse me. So so is it assumed or supposed that there was significant uh, human sacrifice among the Cato. surrounding groups? No. No. Even here, if you take a look, other, the, the, the killings that we read about here are killings that take place in war of the civilian population that's conquered, mm -hmm. but it's referred to with a term that has to do with cult. So the, the Moabite term that I try, is a dedicated offering is rayat, and the Hebrew term is cherem, is, is cherem, and otherwise it just, they're just killed because you're commanded to kill them. That there is the, the, the vocabulary for child sacrifice is the same as the vocabulary for regular sacrifice. So there's not a lot of, of human sacrifice around them, and the Israeli, Israelites didn't do it much, if at all. Yeah. Then, then the centrality of the Akedah story is bizarre. It's bizarre. It, it, it's odd. It, it's odd, and even maybe, maybe it's bizarre, but it's comprehensible. In other words, it loses it loses its strangeness when it's looked at in the context of the other biblical examples. And that people will say, well, should I give my firstborn? But you know, it's, it's, very, it's very nice to, to say that, but you have to put down the flap on the pledge card. Mm -hmm. no, it's talk, it's rhetoric. Mm -hmm. uh, so people may, but, but it's something that was in the cultural background. Mm -hmm. And let's say if over the centuries, there were a thousand people doing it a year, but you know, according to the number of of, uh, of graves that have been excavated by archaeologists, nobody died in ancient Israel. We don't have we don't have sufficient number of graves. Well, that's what I've often thought about when I say you come in and kill all the people. You don't even have to do that when you look at natural disasters that have happened in other lifetimes, and hundreds, even thousands of people have yeah. people get killed. What do they do with the bodies? Yeah. What do they do? We don't. We don't. Well, that's the problem. We don't have. We don't have sufficient. We don't have sufficient evidence for burial to get any sense of who was being buried or what. Because, uh, and and the few. The problem. The problem is the few. It's not the few. The large number of skeletons that we have that are clearly Israel. They were clearly Israelites, because of the political settlement with uh, Teret Kohanim in Israel. 
they've all been buried, so the bones are gone. In Israel, they don't bury, they don't mm -hmm. bury in, in caskets right. and then in, in other. So the, it's all it's all gone. Uh, now with DNA, we could be doing some very interesting things because they're able to take uh, old DNA, old bones now, and pull out at least parts of the DNA. But mass graves are not necessarily evidence of sacrifice no. because when there are illnesses, children often right. die in much greater numbers than adults, right. and they are all put in the same area oh, okay. and either burnt or cover it with lime or whatever it is, and then you will find a lot of bodies. But it's not a sacrifice, it's basically something to do with, and they, that may be more modern, because people understood that you get so sick from being with somebody right. else who's sick, so they're not necessarily... See, well, in the, in the hill country, in the hill country, a lot of the, the the earth is sitting on top of hard hard rock. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you can't bury. So what they actually do is they create these burial caves mm -hmm. uh, all around Jerusalem. So we found a lot of burial caves, but there aren't that many bodies, mm -hmm. and, and a few of them we found piles of bones. Mm -hmm. We think, for example, the expression "gathered unto his ancestors" means the body is placed on the shelf, rots. The bones, the, it's dismembered, and then the bones are placed in, in, in this uh, mass bone collection, and that may be what it means to be gathered unto one's ancestors. This happens in, in France now. In France, when you get buried, you, you don't get buried in your grave forever. You buy your grave for a certain amount of time, and then they dig you up, but then whatever there was has rotted off, and, uh, and uh, bones get stick in, stuck in an ossuary. Oh, right. This I know because my husband's cousin is an undertaker in Paris. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so well, there are there are places where walls are built right. with yes. skulls mm -hmm. and people were wondering what what that kind of sacrifice it was. It wasn't kind of you know the, the skulls fill very nicely together, mm -hmm. fit nicely together if you Stick them like that together, like a, like a brick wall. It, it was apparently I read that. I don't know where it was, but it was That's to make very economical use yeah. of the space. Of real estate. <laughs> mm. Okay. Interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, so much. thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.